Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man has came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. These are the words of our Savior. Father, glorify yourself this morning as we pour over your scriptures with eager hearts, sensitive hearts, consciences that want to be shaped more and more in line with your truth. And may we hold up our lives as nothing, ready and willing for you to write or rewrite the path before us. May we truly see ourselves as your humble servants, even as we look to you during this hour. In Christ we pray. Amen. Keep your Bibles open to the text that Ben just read in Matthew chapter 20 here. And let's reimagine this scene for just a moment. What an embarrassing scene, isn't it? We can't know all the cultural dynamics at play here, but, but come on. Your mom is bringing you and your brother before the Messiah to make the not-so-humble request that her sweet little boys be given dibs at VIP seating in the kingdom of God. <laughs> Positions of highest honor for all to see. It's one thing to make a deal in private, to maybe come to Jesus under cover of darkness and make this deal, but she chooses the public eye. She chooses the very presence of the chief competitors to her son's positions of dominance, the other ten disciples. Her gall, as well as the gall of James and John to go along with this scheme, is just makes your skin crawl. This is downright embarrassing. But rather than responding with an outright rebuke, Jesus chooses to teach a very valuable lesson about what true greatness is in the kingdom of God. He flips their sensibilities upside down. He tells them that the path of greatness is the path of servanthood. And more than servanthood, being first in the kingdom looks like serving to the degree of a lowly slave. So this is greatness. And who is their foremost example? The Son of Man, who came not to be served, but to serve, 
and to give his very life as a ransom for many. The unwasted life, or said positively, life lived to the fullest in God's estimation, is a life poured out in humble service to God and others. So following the Son of Man's cross-centered example of service, this is the pathway to abiding joy. So this morning, rather than expositing a single text of Scripture, such as the passages in Romans that we've been working through as of late, my aim is rather to exposit a concept that is deeply woven within the fabric of the biblical storyline. Namely, our service to God as one of the primary responses to God's mercy and redemption. So if I had to guess, there has to be a high level of familiarity with the concepts that I intend to lay out for our inspection this morning. And I would also guess that much of what I share is assumed by a majority of us in this room. But as is often the case, that which is assumed inevitably falls prey to the danger of what? Forgetfulness. So from the least engaged servants of God here this morning to the most faithful servants of God, every one of us need a renewed biblical vision of the kind of life that God calls His children to live. So allow me to overview the terrain that we intend to cover and what questions will guide us along our study this morning. We'll seek to look at three questions that will hang most of our uh, inspection of various biblical texts upon and will guide us as we think through this theme in Scripture. First of all, what does it mean to serve God? Secondly, what does the Bible actually teach about our service to God? And lastly then, how can we grow as individuals, as a church body, in this call to serve God? But we'll begin with a fundamental proposition that we'll put to the test as we walk through passage after passage, and that is this. Because God has called and equipped every Christian to serve Him, we must worship God through sacrificial, disciplined, and selfless service that's primarily directed toward the strengthening of Christ's church. A few more preliminary orienting thoughts as we get going together. Your your first impression impulse uh, when you hear discussions about serving God may not necessarily be positive. Serving God may bring to mind negative ideas of mindless ministry or or forced participation in some activity you are sort of guilt-tripped into being a part of at one point or another in a church. Or perhaps you were told by a stern-faced individual that if you don't serve in exactly this or that prescribed manner, that you are not even a real Christian and that God would not love you. Well, what I just described is, is probably more common than it should be and can sadly happen when churches just get desperate for stuff to happen. And so they can tend to strong arm people into volunteering for wherever the need is the greatest at that moment. But even worse, some church leaders can even come dangerously close to upending the correct order of the gospel, 
which is to say they confuse expending of ourselves, labor, toil, religious toil, with the nature, the currency of how God accepts us. That is not the gospel, but that is the snare of legalism that we want to stay far, far away this morning. The thought that our faith is in religious actions that will earn favor with God. But on the contrary, our service must flow freely from our apprehension of and belief in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the order, and we must never rearrange it. So my last comment before we dive in is to admit an assumption. And it's an assumption that I feel fairly confident is a home game for me here this morning. But that is this. I'm going to assume, rather than taking the time to, to prove this from Scripture, that you and I agree on a certain conviction. Namely, that the primary vehicle through which God's glory is displayed, through which the gospel is preached, lives are transformed, and the kingdom of God expands, is through the multiplication of healthy, biblically faithful churches. That's the assumption. So that is, that is to say that the gathering here this morning is ground zero for all of that. Because that is true, our service to God finds its fullest expression and greatest purpose when employed within the context of the local church. That is not to take anything away from the foundation of the Christian home or of the helpfulness of serving God and other kinds of Christian ministries or nonprofits or parachurch ministries or whatever. But it is only of the church that we will ever sing, the church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those who hate her and false sons in her pale, against both foe and traitor, she ever shall prevail. No Christian college, no campus ministry, no homeless outreach can ever sing those words with integrity because they are reserved exclusively for the bride of Christ. Do we understand that? I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, Jesus tells Peter in Matthew 16. This eternal institution of God's beloved redeemed children will forever worship Jesus the Lamb. But that is not all. They will serve Him as a kingdom of priests, serving God for all eternity in His holy presence as glorified saints in a new heaven and a new earth. This is our glorious future as believers. So with this expectation in mind, now let's consider first, what does it mean to serve God? What does it mean to serve God? Well, quite literally, the Hebrew concept of serving God would have entailed the idea of, of toiling, of working, of expending a considerable amount of energy in a task or a function. The most common Hebrew word is a highly generic word used nearly 300 times in the Old Testament that runs the gamut as far as its application, meaning toil for any purpose. But when used in a worship context... This involves serving, religious service, a, a ministering, a giving of a high degree of energy and devotion to God. 
The New Testament concept of service interlocks with the idea of being completely given over or controlled by something, but with a humble slave-like allegiance. So as we will see very soon in numerous texts of Scripture, the call to serve God is the call for Christians to grow in the spiritual discipline of sacrificially and joyfully expending themselves in work of any kind that edifies God's people and extends God's glory. Let me unpack that for a moment. Serving God's church is indeed a spiritual discipline that every Christian is called to grow in. If you're not good at it, join the club. But know that God intends for you to progress. This service is to be done sacrificially and joyfully. As Donald Whitney notes, service costing nothing accomplishes nothing. So to follow Jesus is going to be inherently sacrificial. Should the Christian life prove to be challenging for you, know that it is precisely what you signed up for. He called His disciples to leave everything and to follow Him. He calls us to do the same. But this kind of service is no real service because what are we actually gaining? Everything. We gain Him. Service involves expending ourselves. It is, you can't get away from it, labor. It is toiling, oftentimes hard and without any recognition. But it flows from a heart that wants to do it. Why? Because the surpassing love of Christ. Work of any kind. What do I mean by that? Servants inherently do not care. They're not supposed to care about the kind of work that is assigned to them. Menial or high profile. They do their absolute best regardless of their time, their talent, their expertise. And then for the edification of God's people and the extension of God's glory, following Paul's admonition in Galatians 6 to do good to all, but especially to the household of faith. Service always seeks the spiritual maturity of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and ultimately for the glory of God. So next question before us, what do the Scriptures say about serving God? This is where we'll spend a bulk of our time. So beginning in Genesis chapter 2, and I'll tell you when it's you're welcome, obviously, to, but to look anywhere in Scripture. Please do. But I'll probably have us camp out in a few different spots. So in case you're, you're frustrated with me in about 10 minutes, and you know, just know that uh, we're, we're going to be pausing here and there, but there's no way we could possibly accomplish what we're seeking to accomplish in the, the spread of Scripture that we're going to look at. But beginning in Genesis 2, God's command to Adam is clear. He is to work and to keep the garden in which he'd been placed. So this sin-free output of energy by Adam was a sacred calling designed to showcase Adam's priest-like watch care and stewardship for God's world. It was a sacred ministry. Adam was engaged in religious service by virtue of his very calling. As we fast forward to the beginning of the book of Exodus, we begin to detect an interesting trend in the first 14 chapters. As you may well know, the book of Exodus begins with the sons of Jacob beginning to flourish in number. 
eventually becoming the people of Israel. And motivated by a, a fear of what might happen if the Israelites grew in number and in power, the Egyptians sought to afflict them with torturous, torturous slave labor. Conditions only worsened until God raises up a leader, a Hebrew boy named Moses, who would be raised in Pharaoh's court and will one day encounter the presence of God in a burning bush. Moses then begins a lengthy back-and-forth debate that lasts for many, many verses of his inadequate resume for the challenge of informing Pharaoh of God's call to free Israel from slavery. However, as chapter 3 begins to show us, God tells Moses, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God in this mountain. Interesting. The goal of the Exodus is coming into view. God desires genuine, heartfelt service from His redeemed people. After multiple fear-motivated protests before God, Moses, alongside Aaron, obeys God's call to approach Pharaoh with God's message of freedom. And each and every time Moses addresses Pharaoh, the text reads something almost verbatim to this, and you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they might serve me in the wilderness. Exodus chapter 7. So returning to Horeb, Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, for the purpose of serving God in His holy presence, under His lordship, governed by His law, and in the promised land was God's design from the beginning. So note the continual expression used some 23 times in this narrative alone, that they may serve me in the wilderness. Even Pharaoh, in disgust, finally says in chapter 10, go, serve the Lord your God, serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. <laughs> it would appear that even Pharaoh got the message loud and clear, this is what God was up to, that Israel might not serve Him, but that they would serve the one true God. Do you see the trajectory of this theme at work in response to God's glorious salvation and of Israel, their freedom from slavery. He intends to constitute a people who will, in, who will display His glory through worshipful acts of service in all areas of their lives. This is the intention. This is the goal to which the Exodus narrative is driving. Well, as the book of Exodus continues, God gives His people the Ten Commandments. After experiencing God's salvation through the Red Sea, God gives His law at Mount Sinai in dramatic fashion in chapter 19. The mountain shakes. The people cleanse their garments. They are forbidden to encroach upon the holy mountain, and, and they prepare for a holy God to give His holy words, who will then in turn make them a holy nation. The Ten Commandments lay out the terms of the covenant that Israel was to fulfill in their relationship to God. And the first commandment states, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment comes as the natural consequence of the first. You shall not make for yourself a carved image 
or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water beneath the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. It's God's stated, if God's stated purpose in the Exodus was for Israel to serve Him, to expend their lives, to pour their lives out in all manner for the, to, for the glory of His name and for all that He intends to accomplish, then it only makes sense that He would forbid for our good the wasting of our lives in service to a false god. That is only loving. After we understand this, we see that whole life, whole body, wholehearted service not to God is complete worthlessness. In light of all God has done for Israel, this is a grave sin. But as the biblical story progresses, we arrive in the the book of Joshua. If you would turn to Joshua 24. Joshua 24. Verses 14 and 15. When Joshua gathers the leaders of Israel together at Shechem in Joshua 24, the Lord begins to recount the the unfaithfulness of Israel's forefathers. And it was on account of their choice to serve other gods that Yahweh is now enraged, that God's anger has been incited. So we read in Joshua 24, 14, and 15, a fairly familiar text. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, is he, is he dumbing down the call of, of, of reaching the heart? No. This term is an expression of the whole life, whole body, whole heart output, which, which is to say our lives will always bear fruit of equal weight, with what is true of our hearts. There can be no disconnect in that way. So it would appear that one of the signature ways of describing your allegiance to God was through this whole body engaging verb that implies singular devotion that is observable and is real. It's not a flighty thought or a feeling of the heart. This is a life toiling, expending of energy for the sake of God's name. Throughout the book of Numbers and elsewhere, I'd love to spend more time on this, but the, the Levitical priests are constantly referred to as serving the Lord in His holy presence. Phrases such as serving the ministry are used routinely of the priest's work. They were to be given to service of bearing burdens in the tent of meeting, as Scripture says, with specialized tasks. These Priests labored day and night in God's service. The prophets, the prophet Jeremiah in particular, 
But this is true. It's spoken of in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, Zephaniah, Zechariah. They speak to this idea that links God's judgment of exile to Israel's wickedness in choosing to forsake God and to specifically serve foreign gods in the land that God had given them. This constant shattering that Israel was doing of the second commandment by serving false gods would result in serving foreigners in a land not their own as their judgment. So finally, as we continue to move through the biblical story, we arrive in the New Testament. And there are many, many, many examples of service to God that we can't possibly enumerate this morning. But first, we'll see Jesus presenting Himself as the chief of servants in the text we began with this morning. In Matthew 20, we read, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. So speaking of Christ... In Philippians chapter 2, we read, He did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant. Jesus says in John 12, If anyone serves Me, he must follow Me. And where I am, there will My servant be also. If anyone serves Me, the Father will honor him. Now, it's clear from these texts and dozens more that no one modeled servanthood like Jesus. And while He tells us, Jesus tells us that He came not to be served, but to serve, the Father nonetheless honors all who serve Jesus by following Him. And we long for His pleasure. The Apostle Paul speaks over and over of this theme. He begins nearly all of his letters with the self-description of being a servant of Christ. When speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he describes his ministry as that of serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. He even instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 on the need for churches, healthy churches, to have exemplary church servants, deacons who lead the assembly in modeling this spiritual virtue and discipline. Have you thought of it in those terms? The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. The book of Revelation seems to have a fondness for speaking of the elect of God, the saints of God, in the term of servants, God's servants, used nearly 20 times, a favored expression of those who will endure to the end. So, there are so many more categories, biblical themes that interlock with the theme that we've just laid out this morning, a theology of work, a theology of worship, a doctrine of the priesthood of the believers, the concept of spiritual gifts for the building up of the body, all these things. But suffice it to say that you're staring this morning into one of the most consistent themes in the whole of Scripture. And yet, sadly, in practice, this can be one of the most underdeveloped 
spiritual disciplines for Christians. So in the remainder of our our time together this morning, I, I would like to underscore how it is that we can practically grow in our devotion to serving God and His church. So it's here that my assumption from earlier is necessary. Service is wonderful in your community, in your neighborhood, in your homes, in your places of work, all this, or even, that's even biblical, absolutely, but is on account of God's unique promises to His church that cause us to zero in on how it is that we must expend ourselves in joyful labor for the benefit of the household of faith. So lastly, the question before us, how can we grow? How can a Christian grow in the spiritual discipline of serving God? Now, rather than zeroing in on any one of the texts that we looked at in particular and drawing out the the organic, natural application from any one of those, I'm going to go a little more high-level, conceptual application, thinking broadly and thinking very practically. So I pray this is an encouragement for us. First of all, prayerfully evaluate your life against the backdrop of Scripture's teaching on service. So most fundamentally, please ask yourself if there is any desire at all within your heart to serve the living God. If the gospel has taken root in your soul, the Spirit of God will implant at least a small flame of desire to serve the God who has rescued you from His wrath. But if not, would you call out even today for God's forgiveness and His mercy. Your life, friend, is is purposeless, to be frank. You are expending yourself in the most worthless causes that will leave you empty and unfulfilled throughout the entirety of your life. Only a life of serving God will satisfy you. So in a sense, you must first allow the Son of Man to serve you by accepting His free gift of salvation, accomplished through the blood that He shed on His cross and through His resurrection from the grave. For believers here this morning, ask yourself, given my present situation, where do I need to grow to reflect a life of service that builds up Christ's church? Certainly none of us would claim that we've got it all together or that there is not gaps where growth is necessary. But you may be at a season of life where age has you more limited than you'd like. You may be in the chaos of educational learning or job training or caring for elderly parents or some other time-consuming season of life that's just really challenging. So don't feel needless false guilt that you can't serve the same way that someone else might be able to serve. But, nevertheless... Ask God for wisdom to know how you can serve Him. Perhaps it is simply prayer. I'm confident that one of the ways in which Lloyd May is currently serving the body of Eden Baptist Church is not by greeting in the lobby, not by working in the nursery, not by teaching a class, but is probably by seeking 
the face of God for our good. I would almost certainly say that is her ministry to us, even on her deathbed. How essential is the labor of prayer. And it is, if you've attempted to pray for a longer period of time, it is indeed toiling. It is indeed a labor. Secondly, recognize that pitfalls exist on every side. So for the furious, faithful servants among us who serve the absolute most, recognize for you there is a danger. Recognize the danger of mindless ministry that simply goes through the motions and fails to remember the God to whom this service is an act of worship. Recognize the danger of swallowing up so many tasks that you fail to leave any work for others. Recognize the danger of self-motivated ministry that longs to be noticed as active so that you might get some favorable kind of reputation among others. Recognize the danger of a soured spirit that can come in and constantly lead you to harp on your brothers and sisters who do not serve in the exact way that you find a degree of strength. For the rest of us who are not in that camp, recognize the danger of idleness, the danger of laziness. Are you certain that you are perfectly investing your life and your time in what matters most to God. Perhaps you are simply afraid of facing difficult tasks. They stress you out, so you remove yourself from even the potential of a stressful thought. Or perhaps you've come to worship your downtime. Of course, rest is needed and alternate interests to kind of break the, mon- the routines of our lives are good and can be totally wonderful. But has downtime become an area in which you worship and risen to a level that bears more of a mark of, of laziness rather than a Godward-looking rest? Recognize also the fear of failure that can paralyze people from serving because they are perfectionists. They're hyper-self-conscious about gaining the approval of of others. So if they can't master the test with 100% accuracy, they won't even attempt it. Perhaps that is a snare in your heart. Recognize also the danger of idolizing hobbies. Perhaps you have a fascination with with woodworking or or football. Notice I did not say basketball. It's a special grace there. Or... (laughs) kidding, or redecorating your home, or video games, or personal fitness, or vacationing, or whatever. All these things can glorify God, but but you better expect them to want to compete against what matters most. Do you expect them to almost have a life of their own and want to take over? Watch them. They will. They absolutely will. They will want to encroach upon faithfully participating in the life of your church and expending yourself in the service of God. What matters most? Next, prepare for turbulence. What do I mean by that? Well, in a moment of selfless humility, 
you may ask one of the elders here or, or a deacon here where, where there are needs that you'd like to fill the holes wherever you can at this church. And after they assign you a job, you learn it is your absolute most feared <laughs> thought, area of service. You're like, oh, why did I ask that? They, they had to go there, <laughs> right? But instead of grumbling or complaining or having a, a one-and-done mentality, you know what? They asked me to do it, I'll do it one time. I'm going to do it one time, and then I'm out. So rather than having that sort of a mentality, ask God to show you the spirit of what it means to really be a Christ-like servant. Perhaps he will use the, the challenging, the difficult, the mundane, the trivial tasks given to you to assault the very pride that God wants to work on within your heart. Perhaps your service is always, whether you recognize it or not, motivated by personal kickback. What is in it for me rather than the glory of God? Also, you should prepare for relational turbulence when you decide to devote yourself to the service of God. And why is that? Because friction is inevitable when sinners, even sinner saints, serve side by side in gospel ministry. This always happens. Our flesh shows its ugly head, and we respond to one another in sinful ways. So just as you can expect suffering and challenges in the Christian life, you ought to expect relational turbulence with your brothers and sisters in the call to serve God. As you expend yourself in ministry for the building up of Christ's church, expect to have your toes stepped on and for you to be frustrated, for, for a spouse to come home just miffed over something and to need to work through it. You're on the right path. Don't interpret the presence of that as the need to bail on whatever the task was before you. Expect it. Don't be surprised at the turbulence and resolve to either forbear in love or to go to that person alone, showing yourself to be a peacemaker. Now, what you must not do is run, leaving your post and chalking it up to, oh, well, I tried. Turns out I really dislike all people everywhere anyways, so forget this service thing. It's not for me. Don't go there. Next, look long. By this, I mean choose to adopt the long look when it comes to your growth in the spiritual discipline of serving God. Even as Pastor Miller prayed that that slow drip sort of change is so regularly undetectable to us as God's people. But commit to it. Chances are, if growth is necessary, and it is, there are very likely weeds that have grown up that, we, uh, that, that, that don't plan to allow themselves to be dislodged very easily. So you might have to tug on them for quite a while before they are removed. You may need time to watch the seeds of your new patterns of humble, faithful service take root and to germinate before any discernible growth appears. But be patient and watch God slowly change you for His glory. Looking long can have another aspect as well. The multi-generational blessing of faithful service 
is profound. What do I mean by that? Parents, there may be certain things, good things, that your family is choosing to do. Faithful attendance, faithful giving, faithful service of, of children or something, faithful uh, use of your home of, uh, to be hospitable to others. There could be certain things that your family does that when your children are adults and someone asks them why they themselves carry out a certain measure of faithfulness in those very areas, they have no more of a profound answer than, you know what, I just sort of grew up doing that, which was exactly Dr. Jim Hamilton's response when we asked him that very question uh, several weeks ago when he was ministering to us. So it's not, it's not a unintelligent response. It is a profound blessing that when you look long and you're not constantly saying, ah, am I doing a constant evaluation? Is this worth it at this particular moment? I'm going to totally scrap this concept of service. When faithfulness is there, you have no idea the profound impact for generations to come as modeling of faithfulness in this area gives rise to so much fruit. Children, obey mom and dad when they ask you to come and be a part of the very same things here in the assembly, a work day. Sometimes those are really, really fun. Other times they can get long. Sometimes there are things that you come to and it just seems like there's a man standing behind a wooden box who won't stop talking, right? Or there's prayers that seem to never end and you wonder, why am I here? Would you, to the degree that you're able, trust God? That God is planting good things within your heart. There will be fruit and good that will come for years and years to come if your heart remains soft towards Him. This is why we as a church love to foster the cross-generational discipleship, whether in our home groups or and growth groups on Wednesday nights or through the focus fellowship and teen activity and various ways in which we try to cross-pollinate for the, this very purpose, that we might learn from the models and the faithfulness of the generations before us. And lastly, cultivate the right motivations for service. Scripture is packed with proper motivations for serving God. Whether that be gratitude, as Samuel writes, only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. Why? For consider what great things He has done for you. Because you're constantly remembering all that He has done. Allow the gratitude of your heart to flow out in joyful service. I was just speaking with a man in our church yesterday who said, this was the motivation. He didn't say it in these terms, but this is what he was essentially saying. Because of the grace that was shown me, how could I not expend myself in, in loving service for God? Psalm 100 says there's a certain heart that we should perform our service with. Serve the Lord with gladness. A somberness, a sourness of spirit betrays the joy that Christ brings and the privilege it is to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. A forgiveness of guilt. You see Isaiah's response in Isaiah chapter 6, 
after he encounters the holiness of God, his response is to just say, here I am. Send me. Use me. Allow me, God, to pour my life into your service because my forgiveness, my guilt is removed. I have been forgiven. In John 13, we read of the account of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And we see the essence of humility on display. In Galatians 5, 13, we read, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Pray. Pray that over time God would grow these graces within your heart. So our service overflows with gratitude and gladness and humility and love. This is most essential for long-term, sustainable service to God that withstands the disappointments and the discouragements, embarrassment over failure from time to time, and all the inevitable challenges of the Christian life. There's always the nagging fear, even in the most faithful Christian's life, but what will my life look like if I truly adopt this kind of a vision? for my life. There's always a tension of, is it worth it to lose my life for Christ's sake and the gospel? Is it worth it? Well, perhaps the famous missionary to Ecuador, Jim Elliott, had this thought at one point or another in his life. He became a martyr for Christ at the age of 28, laboring in every sense of the word to expand God's kingdom into the hearts of the unreached. And his words have become emblazoned on countless Christian plaques and wall hangings, but they capture our theme so well this morning. Written in his journal here, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So that which he cannot keep being the temporal nature of your life to gain what we cannot lose, which is the smile of God, our eternal reward, eternal rest, and the privilege of serving God in His holy presence for all eternity. So the best investment a Christian can ever make is to invest his or her entire self in the selfless, worshipful service of God. And only as you continually stare into the glories of Christ's redemption, never upend that order, remember, only as you continue steadfastly looking at the gospel of Christ will you come to see that God has saved you to serve. He has saved you to serve Him. So with right motives and humble hearts, let's pour our lives out as an assembly for the honor of His name.